Welcome to EWTN's Crucial Questions, Catholic Answers. I'm Father Regis Scanlon from Denver, Colorado. I'm a Capuchin Franciscan from the Mid-American province. And we're here to consider today the question, have the popes erred in their teaching? You know, it seems to me that every time some theologian or some priest or somebody leaves out of anger, leaves the church or leaves the priesthood or something, all of a sudden there's a new allegation of papal error. Now, it would be tedious and even unwarranted to, to refute, to try to even try to refute all of these alleged papal teachings there. And, uh, but uh, some of them we should take and look at just uh, to make sure that, that to, to expose the kind of moves that people make, if you want to say, when they try to move to, against the Pope or try to move to a prove that the, the church has made some error in her teaching, the, the magisterium that is. And now Hans Kuhn mentions a number of alleged papal teaching errors in his book Infallible and Inquiry. A list of all these errors in papal teaching would include uh, so-called mistakes and decisions made by Popes Liberius and Virgilius, the condemnation of Pope Honorius I, papal teaching on usury and religious freedom, the condemnation involving Galileo. And Robert J. Dion, in his book, The Papacy and the Church, he also mentions some of these same alleged errors. When he claims that the popes have been incorrect in their doctrinal position regarding church membership and religious liberty. Now, besides these alleged errors, Father Charles Curran and B. Griffiths in the tablet, September 20th, 1986, in their letter to the editor, they claim that Pope Boniface VIII erred when he stated in his 1302 bull, Unum Sanctum, that every creature, human creature, must be subject to the Roman pontiff to be saved. They claimed that he erred there. Again, Father Caron also claimed that the church had erred in her decisions on slavery and that Pope Gregory the Great had erred in his teaching on marital sexuality. Lorraine Bittner and others claim that at one time in the church there were three popes. Bittner claims that some of these men were recognized by the church as popes back then, but today the church lists them as anti-popes. Karl Rahner also referred to certain alleged scriptural errors of the Pontifical Biblical Commission, and he said this is equivalent, he said, to the papal error. And while Germaine Griset does not seem to be persuaded by any of these alleged errors in papal teaching, he grants, he doesn't concede, but he grants for the sake of argument that Paul V erred regarding a truth to be held definitively in 1616 when the church made a decision affecting Galileo. Now, I want to point out that uh, Germain Grisey certainly doesn't agree with them. In fact, he's arguing on the side of the Holy Father, but he, he says he'll grant that for the sake of argument. Now, what I want to do here is I have actually investigated all of these cases and found that the popes have not erred at all. But what I want to do is take two examples, and I think I will use the Galileo case and the one and the Gregory the first uh, case, Gregory the Great, uh, so-called error with regards to human sexuality. And I think this is a these are two good examples to use to show how baseless these arguments really are. Now it is alleged that Paul V condemned Galileo for teaching heliocentrism. Okay, that, in other words, that the sun is the center of the universe. But the groundless quality of this allegation can be seen from the following facts. 
Pope Paul V did not condemn Galileo in the Congregation of Index decision in 1616. It was not even the writings of Galileo that were primarily on trial, but rather the writings of Paolo Antonio Foscarni, a Carmelite provincial. Now the Congregation of Index made an error by going beyond its competence and attempting to say that heliocentrism was contrary to the faith. The Congregation of Index, however, was a disciplinary congregation which only had the powers for regulating writing and speaking. They had no doctrinal authority whatsoever. The Pope would visit this congregation occasionally to see what was going on and so forth, but he wasn't sitting there making the decisions, so it couldn't be doctrinal decisions. In other words, they had no authority from the Pope to make a doctrinal decision, but they made one anyhow. Now, church historian J. A. Burkhauser stated that the decree of index of 1616, quote, neither bears the Pope's name nor any mark to show the Pope's intention of defining a doctrine to be held by the whole church, unquote. And that is uh, listed in, this is J. A. Burkhauser's History of the Church, Cincinnati, Frederick Pusit and Company, 1888, page 622, number one. Footnote 1. Now, another church historian, J.J. Langford, states this, that, quote, the decree of the index received papal approval only in forma commune, in common form, huh? And therefore was only a fallible decision of a Roman congregation, unquote. And you'll find that in J.J. Langford, Galileo, Galilee, the New Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume 6, pages 253 to 254. In other words, the Pope did not examine these item by item. He did not examine that particular issue at all. And therefore, this was just a judgment by the Roman congregation, the Congregation of Index. But there's more important evidence. More importantly, Catholic historian James Broderick, a Jesuit, and secular histo historian Stillman Drake, both point out that there's powerful, quote, proof, unquote, that Pope Paul V's personal response to the decree of the index permitted Galileo to hold and teach heliocentrism as a quote hypothesis unquote and you nearly need to know the sources where you can find this to point this out to people uh, you'll find it in the letters of the Pope's secretary which I believe was Saint uh, Robert Bellarmine to Galileo and from Galileo back to the Pope and you'll find that in James Broderick S.J book Galileo the man his work his misfortunes uh, published in New York by Harper and Row 1964 you'll find that on pages 105 and 109 you'll also find it in Stillman Drake's Galileo published in New York by Hill and Wang 1980 in pages 63 to 68 uh, it's important to realize that obviously if the Pope had thought that there had been a doctrinal decision condemning uh, Galileo as, as a heretic for teaching heliocentrism, he would have never, ever allowed Galileo to teach heliocentrism as a hypothesis. But the fact of history is that the Pope permitted him to teach uh, heliocentrism as a hypothesis, probably because he didn't have the instruments to prove his theory exactly, and so he allowed him to teach him as a hypothesis. 
Now, popes didn't do that with heres heretics, and they did do that with heresies. So, obviously, this is powerful proof that the pope did not condemn Galileo as a heretic. So that's one case. So you can see the groundless charge of people who say, well, the church certainly made an error in the Galileo case. Well, the church sure made an error, but it was the congregation's index. The Pope did not make a teaching error, and that's the important point. Now, how about Pope Gregory the Great, Gregory the First? Father Charles Curran, John T. Noonan, Jr., and R. Van Allen claim that Pope Gregory the Great taught that it is a sin for a married couple to have pleasure in the act of sexual intercourse. Hmm, that would indeed be a, a charge, would it not? <laughs> because uh, obviously uh, the Pope, you know, this is a doctor of the church, and I don't think you have to be a doctor of the church to know, to know that people have pleasure in the act of intercourse, and so that would be saying that they'd be always sinning. And so that certainly needs to be investigated. But that this charge was made must be established also very clearly because I think someday these people are going to be embarrassed about the fact that they made this charge. So you'll find it in Charles E. Curran, Descent, The Theology of Descent, a New and Catholic Encyclopedia, the supplementary volume 16, page 127. You'll find it in uh, Charles E. Curran and Robert E. Hunt's Descent in and for the Church, published in New York by Sheedon Ward, 1969, pages 73 to 74. And you'll find it in J.T. Noonan Jr.'s Contraception, published in Cambridge, Massachusetts, by Harvard Press, University Press, 1965. And you'll find that on page 150. And finally, R. Van Allen, Allen his article, Sexual Morality in New Catholic Encyclopedia, Supplementary Volume 16, page 414. They all say that Gregory the Great erred here. And someday I think they're going to regret that they said that. Uh, now, the validity of this claim that Pope Gregory the Great uh, taught that it's a, a sin, huh? A sin. Uh, uh, a sin of lust uh, to have sexual relations between couples. If they have pleasure in sexual relations, then they've committed a sin of lust. The proof of, now in order for them to, uh, to make this a valid claim, this will depend upon the status of the Gregorian teaching huh, involved and the accuracy of its interpretation. Was it an official teaching of the church or was it something he just wrote? And was it, did he really say that it was against the law of God? That's the question. Did he really say that it was against the law of God? Now, if you want to read the footnotes, a more exact account of the footnotes, You'll be able to find these in the June 1991 issue of Homiletic and Pastor Review from pages 17 to 23. Current Nguyen, Noonan and Van Allen cite Gregory the Great's pastoral role when they claim that Gregory erred in marital sexual ethics. First of all, is the pastoral role an official church teaching? Now, the pastoral role was written as a reply to John, the Archbishop of Ravenna, who chided Gregory for his reluctance to assume the responsibility of a bishopric. Perhaps it was even the papal office. The introduction of the ancient Christian writer's translation of the Regula Pastoralis states, by way of reply to John's letter, the Pope wrote the present treatise in which he deals with the great responsibility of the Episcopal office in its onorious nature. Unquote. And by the way, you really need 
to take a good look at this. This is Henry Davis's, he's a Jesuit, his pastoral care introduced in the Christian writers. It's number 11 of the Christian writers translated by Henry uh, Davis, uh, published Westminster, the Newman Press, 1950, page 4. Now, if this is the case, if Gregory wrote this uh, as a present treatise and he dealt with the great responsibilities of the Episcopal office and its, and its uh, repugnant nature to him, this would hardly be a way a person would write an official church teaching. I think everybody has to admit that. But there's more evidence to this. The official papal teachings are found in authoritative documents written for the guidance of the church. Mere theological works, on the other hand, are non-authoritative treatises which a theologian writes for the consideration of others. Now Gregory states this about his pastoral. This is Gregory himself stating about this pastoral role which he wrote, which they claim they found the air in. Says, quote, nor do I wish that what I have happened to write should be known to men while I am in the flesh. For I was much displeased when the deacon Anatolius of blessed memory obeyed the command of our Lord, the emperor, and gave him the book of pastoral rule, which my holy brother and fellow bishop Anastasius of Antioch translated into Greek language and which, as was written to me, pleased him greatly. But it, please, it displeases me much that they who have better books should occupy themselves with unimportant ones. Unquote. And you're going to find that in the Gregory the Great Book 10, Epistle 22. And this can be found in Reverend Reuben Parsons, D.D., Studies in Church History, six volumes. Uh, it's a third edition and it's, uh, this is, uh, was published in Philadelphia by John Joseph McVeigh, 1909. This is volume one, page 384. You'll find that statement there. By the way, this is a tremendous volume of church history studies. I, I don't know of anyone else who has this besides me, these six volumes. It's from uh, a, a 1909. But boy, I'll tell you, if, if uh, any company could really do the church a favor, uh, like 10 books or somebody likes to publish old classics, if they would publish those six volumes, because we really need them today. They're tremendous uh, work. Uh, uh, back, Reuben Parsons even received a uh, congratulatory letter from Leo XIII for his, his, such great work in church history. And so uh, if you've got a chance to get these six volumes, get them. Anyhow, you'll find that statement where Gregory I says that he wishes that no one would read the pastoral role. <laughs> now, uh, you know, while it's while it's very likely that uh, it's very likely that a very humble theologian might not wish that his theological works be read and and praised during his lifetime, it is not all likely that a pope would issue an official teaching for the guidance of the church and then tell people not to read it until he has passed you on the grave, and even to complain that others are reading it. The pastoral role was merely one of Gregory's many theological works which completed shortly before becoming Pope, or after becoming Pope. Now the pastoral role then is in no way an official teaching of a Pope, so you can't say that the Pope made an official teaching error there. But let's examine the pastoral role to see what 
see if Father Curran and his company have interpreted Gregory correctly. Remember, they claim that the, the Pope Gregory said this, quote, If any pleasure is mixed with the act of intercourse, the married couple have transgressed the law of marriage. They have befouled their intercourse by their pleasures. And you'll find that on, uh, for instance, in uh, John T. Noonan's Contraception, page 150. And, I've, and, the, and look at the other citations. Uh, Charles E. Curd and Robert Hunt's pages 73 to 74, and Arvon Allen on page 414. Now, while the above interpretation of Pope Gregory's teaching is Curran's work, it appears to have originally belonged to John T. Noonan, Jr., and to have subsequently been used by R. Van Allen in the Catholic Encyclopedia of all places. Now, I think we know it's ridiculous. It would be ridiculous for a pope to say that if a couple has pleasure in the act of intercourse that they're committing a mortal sin, a sin of lust. And so, you know, we should automatically look over uh, the Latin and the, look at the translation. And when you look at the Latin, a word pops out at you. It's called immoderate. Immoderate. It's, the Latin phrase is ed cum immoderate ed mixione serventes propagationis. Now, what they're saying in moderate, he's talking about not normal sexual intercourse between a couple that's married. The Pope is talking about immoderate sexual intercourse between a couple. Aha, so already we got a different, different situation. Now, let me give you the uh, translation by the ancient Christian writers so that you have their translation uh, by these experts. They say, translating Gregory's document uh, for the pastor role, it is this, quote, the married must be admonished to bear in mind that they are united in wedlock for the purpose of procreation. And when they abandon themselves to immoderate intercourse, they transfer the occasion of procreation to the service of pleasure. Let them realize that though they do not then pass beyond the bonds of wedlock, yet in wedlock they exceed its rights. Wherefore, it is necessary that they should efface by frequent prayer what they befoul in the fair form of intercourse by the mixture of pleasure, uh, unquote. Now, we need to know that this is from St. Gregory the Great's Pastoral Care, Part 3, Chapter 7, in the Ancient Christian Writers, Volume 11, pages 188 to 189. You should look it up and read it if you have a question about this uh, allegation against Pope Gregory I. When you compare, when one compares these, their translations with the actual translation done by the experts, uh, you will find that the teachings, uh, there's a, a great discrepancy. Huh? It's evident. First of all, these theologians, Curran Noonan and Van Allen, they all give the impression that Pope Gregory is speaking about sexual pleasure in relation to moderate marital sex or intercourse. But Pope Gregory is actually speaking about sexual pleasure in relation to immoderate. The Latin word immoderate is in there. Immoderate sexual intercourse. Thus, Pope Gregory is not criticizing the mere pre presence of pleasure in moderate marital sexual intercourse. Rather, he is criticizing the act of making pleasure the primary purpose in marital sexual intercourse by means of immoderate copulation. Okay? Secondly, all three theologians claim that Pope Gregory states that the presence, any presence of pleasure in the act of sexual intercourse is going beyond the law. They say that, quote, the married couple have transgressed the law of marriage. Now, those are, that's their interpretation of what Pope Gregory the Great says. 
But what does Pope Gregory the Great actually say according to Christian writers? He says this, quote, They do not then pass beyond the bonds of wedlock, quote, leachit extra non exeunt. Yet in wedlock they exceed its rights. In ipso tamen conjugio conjugui jura, transcendent, okay? Now, it's very important, I know the Latin we might not be able to understand, but you know that non-exeunt means does not go beyond, okay? Uh, now, while the theologians claim that Gregory is saying that the couple are breaking the law of marriage, Gregory actually says the couple do not break the law of marriage. Quote, I'll repeat this Latin phrase again, quote, leachit extra non-exeunt. They do not go beyond the law of matrimony, of marriage. So, according to Pope Gregory, a husband has a right to moderate sexual relations with his wife, but he has no right to immoderate, excessive, or unrestrained sexual relations, or the right to obtain sexual relations from her from every hour of the day, if that were possible. Nor does she have the obligation to comply with this sexual intercourse every hour of the day. But if the wife concedes to this immoderate sexual relations, the couple still thereby do not transgress the law of marriage. However, they exceed its rights. In other words, no one has a right to that much sexual relation. But in doing it, they do not exceed the law of marriage. So, thus while marriage does not give the couple a right to make pleasure the primary purpose of their sexual relations through immoderate sexual copulation, still in doing so, the couple do not formally commit the sin of lust. However, they do commit a fault, just like eating too much candy, huh? or eating too much food, you know? It's a selfishness. And therefore, they're going to have to do penance and, and do prayer. And that's what he talks about when he says they must do penance and prayer for the pleasure that they cause. But that's not the same thing as saying that a couple has violated the sin of lust or broken the law of God. And so, Curran uh, uh, and uh, R. Van Allen and Newman, they go to great pains to try to look for some air in the magisterium because we all know, at least in Curran's case, that he, he was very strong, and also in Newman's case, very strong in trying to say that the church should allow contraception. And of course, uh, the church always says, well, the church has always taught that contraception is wrong. And their response was, the church has made errors in the past, and they give an example. They give an example of the Galileo case. They give an example, which we've shown that wasn't an error. They give an example of Pope Gregory I, the great claim, and they claim that he said that if you have pleasure in the act of, if a couple, a married couple has pleasure in the act of sexual relations, that they're committing a sin, breaking the law of marriage. So they're constantly trying to look for some, some error in the magisterium. And we have seen here, uh, first the Galileo case, we have seen there is no error there. There is an error, certainly by the church, the Congregation of Index erred, but the Pope did not teach an error. Again, they say, well, then Pope Gregory the Great, they turn there and they say, look at that error there. He claimed that if, you, if a married couple has sexual relations in the act of intercourse, they're committing a sin. Now, that can't be right. They said there, the magisterium is erred. Well, we have looked and examined the case. What do we find? We find a number of things. <laughs> we find, first of all, it was not even an official teaching. He never intended it as an official teaching and he even complained about people reading it. Now, no pope ever come out with an encyclical saying, 
don't read this or don't read this until I'm dead. I mean, that's b bizarre. But even if you examine it, even if you were to grant that this was an official church teaching, once we get into the examination of the statements, what do we find out? They claim the Pope said that if a couple has pleasure in a sexual relationship, uh, then they break the law of marriage. What did Gregory the First really say? What did Gregory the Great say, the doctor of the church? First of all, he says he wasn't talking about normal intercourse. He was talking about immoderate intercourse. He was talking about going beyond the normal thing and with excessive sexual relations uh, frequently. Well, first of all, he, we have to make this point. He doesn't say, he very clearly doesn't say that they break the law of marriage. He says explicitly, he says the opposite. They do not break the law of marriage, but they exceed its rights. And Curran said, claimed that he said that he broke, they broke the law of marriage. Now that's a terrible translation on their part. They really need to bone up on their Latin and take a good look at this. Uh, but so when we look at this uh, I have when I studied at the seminary I have, to, I have to tell you I studied at the seminary and I had to sit in class and I used to hear teacher after teacher say well you could all dissent from the magisterium because the magisterium may be wrong and then he started naming these alleged papal errors for instance they said the Galileo case for instance Pope Gregory the Great for instance Vigilius for instance Honoris I and they go on down the line and they started claiming that there's uh, all these errors uh, that, that the popes have made. Therefore, we can dissent. Well, brothers and sisters, I'll tell you something. I've examined them all. I have never. <laughs> I examined 36 cases. I haven't found one error of the magisterium. I haven't found one error in 2,000 years. There have been errors by the church, by bishops, by groups of bishops, but never by the popes. And so we've come to a conclusion that the popes have never erred. Thank you for being with us. I look forward to seeing you next time and we consider the next question. Thank you.